to 10 250. We also have people in 4270 and 4370. Hello, if you can see me. Um, we'd like to welcome everyone. This is a really important occasion. We're on the eve of war, so thank you for being here. This is MIT's second evening of events, sponsored by the MIT's Initiative of Peace. And yesterday's event was a tremendous success with over 3,000 people attending Reverend Jesse Jackson's um, speech in which uh, he urged us to join our community, fellow members, and uh, study war no more. This was then followed by the inauguration of the MIT Student Center to be the Martin Luther J King Jr. Peace Center and where we will be having um, many different various activities organized. For example, we have discussions, uh, open discussions, workshops, there'll be newspapers, political art, political theater, many, many different things, and we urge all of you to join us after this talk to continue the activities that will be going on in the Peace Center this evening. With no further ado, here's Noam. I guess it's not considered good form to start by uh, admonishing your audience, but I don't think it's a time for cheering. Uh, in fact, it's not easy to talk about this topic at all uh, when we're just short of a decision that's going to mean the slaughter of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people and that may set a large part of the world in flames. Uh, and that's uh, exactly what is soon going to happen. Uh, I suppose there's still possibilities that it may be averted, but right now they look pretty slim. Well, uh, as I say, it's not easy to talk about it calmly, but since I really can't think of much else to do, that's what I will proceed to do for what it's worth. Uh, at least we can try to understand what's going on and use such understanding as we can get as a basis of making some reasonable decision about how to respond to this and many other things like it that are going to follow. Uh, when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait on August 2nd, there were two responses. Uh, and they were both, they were both very strong uh, and pretty much unprecedented. Uh, one response, which went through the United Nations, was uh, sanctions and embargo, uh, and those sanctions were of unprecedented severity. I mean, there's been nothing remotely like them, even in cases much worse than this latest crime of Saddam Hussein's. Uh, the other response was uh, preparation for war, quick preparation for war within a day or two. Uh, 
that preparation for war had nothing to do with the annexation of Kuwait. In fact, it took place well before the annexation, so it had to do with the uh, invasion. And at the time that it took place, there was essentially nothing to distinguish Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait from, for example, uh, George Bush's invasion of Panama a couple of months earlier, which was probably more bloody and destructive. Uh, now, these two responses separate world opinion quite substantially. Uh, the first response had pretty broad support, at least in the industrial world. The sanctions, and sanctions, of course, means negotiations. Uh, sanctions means that you put pressure on through some economic means, uh, leading to a negotiated settlement of some kind. Uh, and diplomacy, there's another word for diplomacy. It's called linkage. That word is a new one that was kind of invented here, and we're supposed to be against it. But it's just another word for, dipl for diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy means, uh, you know, you consider relevant issues and you try to reach some uh, uh, solution to them. But since we're supposed to be against it, a new word was necessary, and that's linkage, which is bad, and therefore everybody's against linkage. Uh, the, uh, so the first response is sanctions and diplomacy equals linkage, uh, and uh, that had pretty broad support. And what was surprising about it is not that it took place, because there's often uh, broad support for broad opposition to aggression, but uh, that it could get implemented that sanctions could be implemented, which is rare, and also that they were so severe, which is also very rare. The second response, preparation for war, that was very limited. In fact, it was limited to the United States and England uh, with very weak support from others. Uh, also, the family dictatorships that run the Gulf states, they're in favor of it and Israel's in favor of it. But aside from, but it's basically a two-member partnership, U.S. and England. Uh, and uh, if you look at the military structure, you'll notice that two military forces are under a command structure to fight, and the others are kind of hanging around the periphery to the extent that they're there at all. Uh, the other major countries in the world didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, the uh, European community in Japan, the other two major power centers, uh, European community outside of England, uh, made it pretty clear at once that this was none of their business. They were not going to support it even financially. Uh, in the third world, very split. Much of it is, in fact, against the, any of the responses. In the Arab, the Arab world, there's a sharp division. Uh, it's been noted, and it's worth paying attention to, that the division in the Arab world pretty much has to do with uh, the extent to which a country has some degree of responsiveness and openness to public opinion. By and large, the more a country has some form of pluralism and uh, elements of democracy, it tends to be opposed to the U.S. presence in the Gulf. The countries that are more in support of it are the ones that are more repressive, narrower, uh, have no uh, openings. That's pretty much the case. Uh, and it's been noticed. Uh, the uh, New York Times specialist on the Middle East, Judith Miller, pointed out that uh, uh, the countries that have what she called nascent democratic movements are opposed to the U.S. presence. And administration uh, spokesmen have also noticed it and have spoken about it and have pointed out that their, their conclusion from that is that we have to strike fast. Uh, because uh, if you, uh, especially if you let things run into the Islamic religious periods around March, you know, the Ramadan and uh, the pilgrimage, the Hajj, then even the totalitarian states have a tough time keeping a lid on public opinion and therefore the whole thing may collapse. 
So the conclusion is strike fast. And uh, incidentally, the same conclusions are drawn about the home front. Uh, unless you strike fast, there'll be uh, an expression of public opinion. Well, you can draw your own conclusions from that, that both, you know, both the, the lessons that it teaches about statecraft and the prospects for action. Anyhow, there were those divisions. George Bush likes to talk about how it's the world against Saddam Hussein, which is something of an exaggeration. It certainly is the industrial world and parts of the rest against Saddam Hussein. But it's also, in this respect, uh, the world against George Bush or to be more precise, against George Bush and uh, whoever happens to be sitting in uh, 10 Downing Street at the moment varies. Uh, but it's the US-British coalition uh, that's uh, pretty much breaking with world opinion on that uh, and has been from the beginning. Now, that raises a number of questions. We want to understand why the United Nations was able to act, which is very unusual, why the actions were so unprecedented in severity as they were, can't think of another case where uh, there was an embargo on food, for example, uh, even in much worse cases than this. Uh, and of course, the crucial question is why the United States and England are alone, aside from the family dictatorships in the Gulf, pretty much alone. Uh, well, let's hold those questions in the back of our minds for a second and be clear about what, in fact, happened next. Uh, what happened next is that within days of the invasion, well before the annexation, the United States moved decisively to undercut the possibility that sanctions might be effective. That was done instantly. Uh, the immediate response from Washington was to dispatch, to announce the sending of a huge expeditionary force. Now, uh, a, a deterrent force, largely offshore, that could be kept in place for a long time. Uh, long enough for sanctions to take effect. And these sanctions are very likely to take effect. Uh, two for, it's two major reasons for that. One is their unprecedented severity, and the other is that the usual sanctions busters, namely the United States and England and their allies, happen to be on board this time, and vigorously <laughs> on board. So it's not like South Africa. Uh, so this time, it's very likely that the sanctions would work. Uh, but of course, it takes time for sanctions to work. And uh, a huge expeditionary force can't be kept there more than a couple of weeks or maybe months at the outside. Uh, furthermore, there's this problem that I mentioned before. You can't keep the troops too long or the Arab world blows up because nobody likes it. Uh, so you've got to do it fast. Uh, that wouldn't be a problem with a deterrent force. Uh, so the purpose, certainly the effect and the predictable effect, so I assume the purpose of announcing right off that there would be uh, a huge uh, expeditionary force, that must have been, it's, the effect obviously was, and the purpose must have been to undercut sanctions, to make sure that they can't work. Uh, and within the first couple of days, it was clear that sanctions were not an option. Well, what about diplomacy, the other aspect of uh, the peaceful means prescribed by international law, sanctions and diplomacy? Uh, diplomatic opportunities began to crop up from very quick, very quickly within a week or two. Uh, by the end of August, there were several that looked pretty significant, uh, including Iraqi offers that were regarded by high U.S. officials as serious and negotiable. Uh, the offers at that time basically had to do with, as you've all heard plenty of times by now, with two uninhabited islands in the Gulf and with a particular oil field, the Rumailo oil field. This oil field's about 98% inside Iraq, crosses a disputed border, and Iraq wanted control of the whole thing. Uh, 
the, uh, or the uninhabited islands, they have to do with access to the Gulf. Uh, the imperial settlement imposed by England was set up in such a way that Iraq is basically landlocked and uh, access to the Gulf would involve control over those two islands. There could be lots of ways of working this out, you know, leasing or whatever. Now, um, you know, much harder problems than that have been settled through negotiations, uh, and uh, a settlement along those lines looked feasible. Was it feasible? Well, we don't know, because the United States rejected it flat out, out of hand. The only way you can find out if a proposal is serious is to pursue it, obviously. And rejecting it out of hand was a way of ensuring that you, that it wouldn't be serious. In fact, it was probably an expression of fear that it might be serious. Uh, the, the New York Times had a pretty remarkable story. Thomas Friedman, the diplomatic correspondent, which that means essentially the State Department spokesman at the Times. <laughs> uh, that's the nature of that office. Uh, he had a, quite a perceptive article, I thought. I think it was around August 22nd, in which he said that the administration wants to uh, to prevent the diplomatic track from being pursued because of fear that pursuit of the diplomatic track might defuse the crisis uh, in, this was his words, in uh, uh, by offering a few token gains for Saddam Hussein, uh, namely, and then he mentioned them, a couple of uninhabited islands and some you know, border rectification. And you don't want to defuse the crisis and when you can have a neat war with you know, a couple hundred thousand people killed, apparently. So that, uh, the, uh, uh, the Times actually had this offer leaked to it and suppressed it, uh, and it was only released and then marginally when it was then leaked to a suburban newspaper in uh, New York, Newsday, which published it very prominently on the front page. It was all over the newsstands in New York, and you had to at least have dismissive mention of it in the back pages the next day. Well, since that time, there have been repeated offers. Uh, the most recent one that's been made public, at least, uh, was, on was disclosed on January 2nd, again in Newsday. The reporter, good reporter in Newsday, Newt Royce, Washington Bureau, who's been following this topic very closely. Uh, on January 2nd, he reported that uh, the uh, US officials had disclosed uh, that there had been an Iraqi offer a couple of days earlier. Uh, and that offer was to withdraw completely from Kuwait in return for a pledge not to attack the withdrawing forces uh, and to reach arrangements uh, on or settlement or some, something kind of vague, you know, to, to do something about two issues, two major regional issues. One of them, uh, the issue of the Arab-Israeli conflict, particularly the state of the Palestinians, and the second, uh, issue was uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction in the region. So in return for some kind of Security Council commitment to de deal with those two issues, there could be complete withdrawal. Well, was that offer serious? We don't know because the United States dismissed it instantly. Uh, again, high State Department officials thought of it, thought it, described it as a serious pre-negotiating position as an indication that Iraq wants to withdraw from Kuwait. Uh, and uh, noted specifically that it didn't say anything about the border issues, uh, dropped them. Well, uh, that one didn't get much publicity. Uh, the New York Times, however, which didn't report that, did report the same day a, me a meeting between Yasser Arafat and Saddam Hussein in which Arafat said that uh, they had agreed that Saddam Hussein had made an, a, a proposal back on August 12th 
to withdraw, or to at least to link Iraqi, all these things are kind of vague, to link Iraqi withdrawal to withdrawal from other occupied Arab territories. That means Syria and Israel from Lebanon, and Syria and Israel from the Syrian Golan Heights and the uh, West Bank and Gaza Strip. And according to the January 2nd report, January 3rd in the Times, uh, this was now weakened to just a, a commitment to deal with those issues. So withdrawal in response to a commitment to deal with those issues. Well, that was also rejected. Anyhow, two weeks before the deadline, things looked like this. Uh, the contours of a possible settlement were Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait in return for a, uh, a pledge not to attack the withdrawing forces and a commitment to settle regional issues. No settlement of them, just a commitment to settle, of, settle them. That was rejected, so we don't know if that was serious. Uh, the, uh, and all of that is indicative of a strong opposition to diplomacy, very strong opposition to diplomacy. These are certainly well within the range of negotiable positions, uh, but the United States didn't want to hear of them, uh, and, and they were flat out rejected, and therefore we haven't any idea, and we'll never know, whether that offered uh, a, a way of uh, avoiding a major catastrophe. Uh, that has continued up until just a couple of hours ago. Uh, uh, last night, France made a proposal at the Security Council uh, for a uh, Iraq calling for complete and rapid Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait in return for, and then comes wording, vague wording about calling an international conference at an appropriate moment I'm not even saying when, but sometime or other, calling an inter a commitment to call an international conference at an appropriate moment to consider uh, the uh, Palestinian issue in the Arab-Israeli conflict. That was the proposal. That was flat out rejected by the United States instantly. Uh, the United States and Britain rejected it outright. Also the Soviet Union, but you know, at this point, the Soviet leadership would stand on their heads and sing Yankee Doodle if they thought they could get American <laughs> support. So that's irrelevant. Uh, but uh, England and the United States instantaneously rejected it uh, on the usual grounds, you know, linkage, meaning diplomacy, and you can't reward aggressors and all this posturing. Now, uh, what actually, what the UN ambassador, the American UN ambassador said, Thomas Pickering, uh, he said, you can't accept this because it uh, doesn't keep to the UN resolutions on uh, Iraq and Kuwait. And he's l technically correct about that. The wording is not drawn from those resolutions. It's drawn from a different UN uh, decision, Security Council decision. Namely, it's drawn from a Security, the, uh, from a, a Security Council uh, uh, decision on December 20th of last year, which had absolutely nothing to do with Iraq. It had to do with protection of the rights of Palestinians under Israeli occupation. It was a resolution which called for, I think 681, which called for uh, Israel, called on Israel to observe the Geneva Conventions and to stop deporting people and uh, to protect the rights of Palestinians under occupation. Now, that resolution was passed unanimously. The United States voted for it too. Uh, and attached to, then came something kind of unusual. Attached to that resolution was a, a codicil, a statement attached to it, which said, not in the resolution, but attached to it, which said, members of the Security Council uh, agree that in the interest of peace, they will uh, proceed at an appropriate moment, that's the crucial wording, they will proceed at an appropriate moment 
to consider, call for a, uh, an international conference to deal with the issue in order to reach peace. Now, why wasn't that in the resolution? Well, because if that phrase had been in the resolution, the United States would have vetoed it, right? Remember that this had nothing to do with Iraq. This word Iraq or Kuwait never got mentioned in this resolution. It just had to do with the Palestinians. But the United States was going to veto it if it said that at some appropriate moment in the future, there would be a unspecified when, you know, at some moment in the future, when it's appropriate, whatever that means, uh, there might be an uh, international conference on the Palestinians. If that was the case, the United States was going to veto it. Nothing there about linkage. You know. And the, uh, the uh, French offer simply drew that wording and tried to work it into a, a resolution on Iraq. So uh, Pickering, the ambassador, was right in saying the wording wasn't drawn from uh, Iraq resolutions, but it was drawn from another resolution or an addition to a resolution. Uh, just a couple of weeks earlier. Well, as where we that indicates the, the depth of the commitment of the United States not to allow diplomacy to work. Uh, can't allow it to work, even in, in any fashion whatsoever. You know, even the weakest gesture toward diplomacy has to be blocked. Uh, the U.S. from the start insisted that diplomatic contacts be limited to delivery of an ultimatum. Uh, you're allowed to deliver them an ultimatum saying capitulate or die. That's diplomacy. Uh, and that's what George Bush calls going the extra mile for peace. Uh, and uh, most of the press, including even people who ought to know better, like Fred Kaplan of The Globe, who's a good reporter, have re described this as a you know, tremendous uh, forthcoming effort to explore every possible diplomatic path and so on and so forth. Fact is, it was flat rejection of diplomacy from the first instant. Uh, now, th those, uh, looking back, we have the following situation. There were unprecedented sanctions. Uh, there were diplomatic options. The United States moved at once to undercut the sanctions and moved at once to undercut the diplomacy and has kept to that position ever since. Well, what are the reasons for this? You've heard them 10,000 times. We can't reward aggressors. You can't have linkage. Uh, and so on. You know, it just offends our moral sensibilities to allow our aggressor to get anything. Uh, so therefore, you know, we got to smash him in the face. Uh, now, you know, it really doesn't, I don't, we don't have to waste any time discussing this. Uh, the only reason for even spending three seconds on it is that this has been accepted at face value virtually across the spectrum. So for example, if you listen to the congressional debate, you'll notice that, I mean, I didn't hear the whole thing, but just about everybody, maybe everybody, every word I heard at least, accepted the legitimacy of this. And most of the press has accepted the legitimacy of this. There's been very little questioning of the rhetorical stance. There's debate, but the debate is over you know, tactics. Is it good for us or is it bad for us to pursue this just course? Now, uh, th uh, because the rhetorical stance was never challenged, the debate was re pretty much restricted to a tactical frame. Is it good for us or is it bad for us to proceed? And in that frame, the administration's going to win, obviously. You know, I mean, it's debatable, and so you go along with power. Uh, of course, if the rhetorical stance had ever been challenged, it would have collapsed instantaneously, and that would have been the end of the debate, because it's impossible to uphold even one, one fragment of this position for a three seconds. And the reason for that is very simple. In fact, it's a, the reason is one of logic, basically. The point of logic is that you can't uphold principles selectively. If you uphold some doctrine selectively, it's not a principle. 
I mean, that's transparent, and we don't ever doubt that. So, for example, when Saddam Hussein tells us, you know, uh, that uh, he's agonizing over the uh, human rights abuses of the Israelis in the occupied territories, and he clutches to his breast the Amnesty International report on Israeli atrocities, which is pretty awful, incidentally, uh, or when he tells us he's against annexation, namely he's against annexation of the Golan Heights, uh, we don't say he's a man of principle. You know, you laugh. Uh, and exactly the same reasoning holds true when George Bush tells us that he clutches to his breast the Amnesty International report on Iraqi atrocities in Kuwait, but not a long list of others you might think of, uh, and that his, you know, uh, can't, can't tolerate, can't go to sleep at night because of this thought that an aggressor's not being punished, and so on and so forth. I mean, these are jokes. Uh, incidentally, in the third world, my impression, we don't get much information from the third world, but my impression is that they were regarded as jokes. It's kind of striking that until the last couple of weeks, days even, people in the third world didn't seem to think that this was going to happen. I, I was down at a conference in Mexico last weekend, and nobody took it from people around Latin America, and nobody thought this was for real. They all thought, you know, this, gotta, you know, this is never going to happen. Uh, I've, people from the Middle East uh, have had the same reaction from right in the region. And I think the reason for that is pretty simple. When we hear Saddam Hussein's posturing, we laugh. When they hear George Bush's posturing, they laugh. What they don't realize is that in the United States and England, people don't laugh. They take it seriously. Uh, they don't understand the deep totalitarian streak in Western culture, which means that you can get by with this kind of posturing and everybody takes it very seriously and somberly. Uh, and that's the kind of mistake that uh, people in the third world have been making for a long time, in fact, for 500 years, uh, ever since the uh, European conquest of the world began, and they've paid quite a cost for it. Uh, and they're continuing to pay a price. Uh, well, now it's clear that it's for real. Uh, uh, the, uh, just, it's, it's instantaneous. I'm not going to waste your time on it. But the United States is one of the leading violators of all the principles that are grandly proclaimed. That's obvious. You know, anybody who's opened their eyes in the last 50 years or 100 years knows that, even the last year, in fact. Uh, and therefore, we don't have to argue any further about these stance. What about the matter of linkage or sanctions? Well, supposedly, we're not, we can't be for sanctions because it'll take too long. Why will it take too long? Well, there's the argument given by, uh, 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 the, argument given by the administration and by people in Congress uh, is that uh, if you, one argument is, well, if you wait for sanctions to hold, the coalition will fall apart. Yeah, that's interesting. Po that's possibly true, incidentally. But that tells you something about the kind of support that there is behind the U.S. position. Uh, the uh, uh, second argument is that uh, uh, um, that sanctions will uh, re reward the aggressor. You know, it just hurts our moral sensibilities to sit by while we watch the aggressor. Uh, you know, benefit from what he's done. We got to move fast to stop this. Uh, you know, our sensitive souls from being seared by this site. Again, that's not one you can take very seriously either. Uh, there are other cases where there have been sanctions, very porous sanctions, because, as I say, the United States and England and France and others regularly violate them. Uh, but take, say, South Africa. Uh, the occupation of Namibia was declared illegal by the United Nations and the World Court uh, back around 19, late 60s. Uh, for years, 
the United States carried out what it called quiet diplomacy and constructive engagement, uh, 20 years in fact. Meanwhile, South Africa robbed the place, you know, terrorized it, used it as a base for attacking its neighbors at a terrific cost. The UN Economic Commission on Africa estimated the cost to the neighbors alone, forget South Africa and Namibia, in the last decade, in the 80s, uh, they estimated it at over $60 billion and a, half, a million and a half lives. Well, meanwhile, our sensitive souls weren't seared. We went along with nobody proposed bombing South Africa, nobody bomb proposed withholding food. Uh, the sanctions, you know, they were violated all over the place. We went on with diplomacy. There was finally a settlement with plenty of reward for the aggressor, plenty of linkage, you know, linkage all the way up to Cuba. Uh, and and uh, uh, everybody thought that was great, you know, a great achievement of diplomacy. And the same is true in case after case after case. When George Shultz tried to broker Israel's withdrawal from Lebanon after a completely unprovoked attack in which maybe 20,000 civilians were killed, uh, when he tried to, that, he, that was a partial withdrawal from Lebanon, plenty of reward for the aggressor, and plenty of linkage. So, you know, Syria was ordered to get out, not no negotiations with Syria, you just give them orders. Uh, that's linkage with a vengeance. Uh, same was true after Israel's invasion of Sinai back in 1956, which the United States didn't like that time, so it kicked them out, but again, with plenty of rewards for the aggressor, that's just standard. So this, this just can't be taken seriously. I mean, serious people can't waste a moment on this, so let's not. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, there's a conclusion that follows from this, incidentally. The conclusion that follows is that no reason has been offered for going to war. And I mean no reason. I mean none. There has none whatsoever. There's been simply no argument. The reason is that every single argument is transparently fraudulent, not complicated fraud, trivial fraud. Uh, and that means whatever is going on has nothing to do with the reasons that are being presented, some other thing. Uh, well, let's come back to the original questions. Uh, wh uh, why, the, why, did the, why were the sanctions implemented? Well, one reason, the, the answer to that is also trivially simple. Uh, the sanctions were implemented because the United States for once permitted it. Uh, usually, the United States doesn't permit the UN to carry out its peacekeeping role. That's why it doesn't carry it out. Uh, for the last 20 years, the United States is far in the lead in vetoing Security Council resolutions. In second place is the other one of the righteous Avengers in the Gulf, Britain, mainly because of their protection of the racist states of Southern Africa. Uh, between them, the United States and England, which are now standing on high principle, account for about four-fifths of the Security Council vetoes uh, during these last 20 years. In third place, well behind, is France, and in fourth place is the, is the Soviet Union. Uh, well, you know, there's, we're now told over and over again that one of the really important things is this great new world order, which, you know, will finally, you know, will have peace and the UN will be able to function, because the Soviet Union is out of the, has lost the Cold War, and therefore they're not going to block the UN anymore. Well, you know, it takes three minutes to figure out who's been blocking the UN. I should say the same is true in the General Assembly. Uh, and there's not the slightest reason to suppose that with the Soviet Union out of the game, 
the United States and Britain will suddenly call off their campaign against international law and against the United Nations. That doesn't make any sense. Why should they? In fact, I'll carry it out more vigorously. There's less, less in the way. Uh, there's no prospects for a new world order or a great new era. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, I should say, incidentally, that in this case, too, I think if you take a careful look, you'll notice that the United States also undercut the peacekeeping function of the United Nations, but in a more complex way. Usually it does, just does it by vetoes, straight vetoes, so nothing can happen. In this case, the United Nations did move toward sanctions, and the United States, as I said, undercut that instantly, undercut the sanctions option and undercut the diplomacy option. That's undercutting the peacekeeping mission of the UN. Uh, there were lots of threats and pressure and cajolery, and finally what in effect happened is that the UN washed its hands of the matter. Uh, this famous UN resolution that was passed basically says nothing. It says use any necessary means. doesn't tell you what necessary means are. They can be diplomacy or sanctions, or for those guys who want to kill a lot of people, they can be kill a lot of people. But that's a decision for the individual states to take. There's no UN resolution that uses any phrase like minimal use of force or anything of that kind. The UN has mechanisms, Security Council has mechanisms to call for military force. It specifically didn't use them. Uh, and the United States incidentally didn't want it to use them because those UN resolutions were intended as nothing more than a weapon against Congress uh, so that you could turn to Congress, people in Congress and say you guys aren't as uh, patriotic as Malaysia or something. Uh, and uh, that's, that's it. Now, this whole uh, record is one of simply undercutting the United Nations in a slightly different fashion than the usual one. Uh, why were the sanctions of such unprecedented severity? Well, that's easy to answer, too. It's because of tremendous U.S. pressure. U.S. is a scary place, and people don't stand up against it. It's dangerous and frightening. Uh, and if the U.S. is putting a lot of pressure, it's also powerful. And if the U.S. is putting pressure on, people tend to go along. Not gonna stand up against, you don't stand up against a violent, lawless, terrorist state. And uh, uh, what happened is the sanctions were imposed, again, they, it's not explicit, there's nothing explicit in the UN. In fact, the, the UN resolutions don't even call for enforcing sanctions, if you actually read the wording. But it was interpreted the US way, block everything, including force. So that answers the first set of questions, very simple. Uh, the UN could act because the United States for once permitted it to, instead of blocking it as is usual. The reaction was particularly harsh because the United States twisted a lot of arms and scared a lot of people. Uh, the, uh, uh, and that's about all there is to it as far as the first questions are concerned. What about the more interesting ones? The, uh, why are the U United States and England isolated on this issue? Well, that's important to look at. Uh, here, we gotta, here you have to look a little more carefully at, the, uh, at what's going on. So let's, let's start with this latest Iraqi offer disclosed by uh, U.S. officials, remember, to withdraw from Kuwait in return for agreements on two major issues, regional issues, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Why won't the U.S. permit that? Well, I've already mentioned that the U.S. is opposed to an international conference quite independently of uh, anything having to do with Iraq. Uh, and in fact, we know that because the U.S. has been opposed to an international conference long before Iraq invaded Kuwait. So the argument that we're now opposed to it because of linkage, that can't be true. We were opposed to it before, quite apart from the fact that we standardly reward aggressors, even much worse cases than this. So that's not the answer. Why, what is the answer? Well, the answer to that is also painfully simple. 
the United States is opposed to a diplomatic settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and it's been opposed to it for a long time, and it's isolated on that. The last vote at the United Nations last year uh, was 151 to 3. The three were the United States, Israel, and Dominica. Now, that's the kind of unanimity you never get at the United Nations. All the NATO allies voted against us. Everybody did. I mean, I, maybe one or two countries were sleeping or something. But uh, it was basically the world against George Bush, you know. Uh, and uh, by, again, by a large, much larger majority than the world against Saddam Hussein. Well, that's why, we're, and that's why it's been for 20 years. The United States and Israel have been essentially alone in blocking a political settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, which has been supported by the whole world. Well, that tells you why they're against an international conference. What's going to happen at an international conference? Uh, any, no matter how you pick the people, you pick them as you like. There's no way to, unless you pick just Dominica. Uh, at an international <laughs> conference, there's going to be pressure, and that'll probably change, you know, it'll probably change the day after the vote uh, when they paid them off. The, uh, uh, at any international conference, there's going to be pressure for a diplomatic settlement. And the United States doesn't want a diplomatic settlement, therefore there can't be an international conference, period. Nothing to do with linkage, nothing to do with Iraq, nothing to do with anything. That's, why it's, that's the way it's been for years. The United States has been vetoing Security Council resolutions, voting virtually alone against General Assembly resolutions, undercutting every possible initiative. This has been going on since, since 1970, 70, 71. Nothing new about it. Uh, that's what our blocking of the, peace, of the diplomatic uh, process on this even has a technical name in the United States. It's called the peace process. Uh, we're pursuing the peace process, meaning blocking every conceivable possibility to get peace. And uh, 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 in fact, occasionally you get an article like, you know, we'll say somewhere, well, uh, the, the uh, the Russians are, you, I remember an article in the New York Times saying the Russians are trying to come aboard, you know, they're trying to get to join the, the peace process, meaning maybe they're going to accept the U.S. position in isolation from the rest of the world. You know, if they do that, they'll be on the team, team being us by definition, even everybody else is off the team. Uh, well, that's the way it's been for a long time, so therefore there can't be an international conference and therefore we go, we go to war. What about the second issue, uh, the, the issue of weapons of mass destruction? Well, refusal of linkage on this one is particularly remarkable because this is a disarmament issue. And disarmament issues are always settled in a regional or global context. I mean, that's not even in dispute, right? Of course, disarmament issues are settled in a, in a broader context, regional or maybe global, everyone is. But we reject it in this case. And once again, that rejection, though it's claimed to be based on linkage, has nothing to do with Iraq's conquest of Kuwait, and it's easy to prove that. We can prove it very easily by simply noticing that the United States also opposed the diplomatic settlement of that problem before the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. In fact, last April, when Saddam Hussein was still George Bush's great friend and favored trading partner, uh, at that last April, uh, Iraq made an offer to destroy its nonconventional weapons. Uh, to destroy its biological and chemical weapons. And that was turned down by the United States. The United States responded and turned it down because Saddam Hussein insisted that this be done in a regional context. That is, that Israel destroy its nuclear weapons and its biological and chemical weapons. Well, you know, that's not entirely unreasonable, one might think. Uh, but the United States rejected it 
and the terms of the rejection are worth listening to. The official State Department rejection said they welcomed Saddam Hussein's offer to destroy his own weapons, but that can't be linked. The United States rejects any link to other weapons issues. Uh, the other weapons issues were left unspecified. But of course, everybody knows what that means. That means Israel's nuclear weapons, which they've had for at least 20 years, probably a couple hundred of them. Now, you can't mention that. If you look at the US diplomatic record, you'll notice that no spokesperson for the government ever refers to Israeli nuclear weapons. I mean, everybody knows they've got them. You know, that's not even a question. But you can't refer to them. Why can't you refer to them? Well, there's a reason for that in American law. Uh, according to uh, amendments to the foreign aid legislation back in the, in the 70s, uh, it's illegal under American law to give any aid at all, including economic aid, to any country that's engaged in clandestine nuclear weapons development. So therefore, if you concede that Israel has nuclear weapons, all aid to Israel has been illegal for years. And you can't concede that. So therefore, you don't mention Israeli nuclear weapons. Uh, but in order to preserve Israel's right to continue uh, nuclear weapons development uh, without uh, mentioning it, of course, uh, we reject the possibility of treating Saddam Hussein's military arsenals through diplomatic means, which is the right way to do it, uh, and we go to war. You know. uh, that's, the other, that's the other element. Notice there are three issues here that are linked. One is Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait, another settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and other regional security problems, and a third, the problem of Saddam Hussein's threatening military arsenals. There appears to be a diplomatic approach to every one of those three issues. The United States is opposed to a diplomatic settlement of each of those issues, and therefore it's opposed to linking them. Very simple. That's the answer to why we're opposed to linkage, meaning diplomacy, and why we go to war. Well, that gives you more understanding of what's going on. The Britain is with us on this uh, alone, virtually alone, except even on the Arab-Israeli conflict, even Britain's not with us. Uh, in fact, nobody is except Israel. Well, uh, that leaves basically the, the really the serious question, why are the United States and Britain alone on this issue? Uh, why is it the world versus the United States and England, which it pretty much is? Uh, that's a serious question because it's going to blow up a large part of the world very shortly, maybe getting started right now. Uh, so it's worth trying to understand it. Well, when you turn to the, the other questions are really trivial. I mean, every question I've mentioned so far shouldn't strain the intelligence of a 10-year-old. If it's not in the front pages of the newspaper, it's because they're trying hard not to understand it. There's nothing subtle about this. And you don't have to have any complicated knowledge of world affairs or be able to think through hard arguments or anything. You don't have to know anything. Everything, you know, everything that I've just said is basically elementary. And uh, there shouldn't be any much confusion about it. However, this other question, why the United States and England are alone, that's harder. There you really have to speculate. You know, you have to try to figure out what's behind policy decisions and so on. Uh, and uh, it is speculation, so you could argue, but it, speculation doesn't have to be totally uninformed. You know, there's, there's evidence. Uh, there's evidence from history, and there's evidence from the current, uh, uh, the current world situation. How am I doing on time? Should I go three more minutes? Okay, yeah, you, you tell me if you know. Uh, so let's take a look at those at those two questions, those two issues. We know something about those. Uh, on the matter of history, there's some very, there's some, again, pretty obvious points. 
there, there was an imperial settlement in that region, and that imperial settlement was imposed by the United States and England. Uh, it was, in fact, imposed in such a way that they would be the beneficiaries of it. Uh, given that fact, it's not too surprising uh, to see that those are the two countries that are girding up for war in the Gulf while everybody else keeps their distance. Now, the history of this goes back to the early part of the century. Originally, it was England and France. You know, they sort of had the, they, they ran the region. Uh, by the First World War, the United States was becoming a big actor in international affairs, and it wanted to get in too. So there was a British-French uh, uh, U.S. division around, you know, by the 20s and the 30s. Uh, after the Second World War, uh, the United States essentially took over. Uh, the, you know, the relations of power were such that the United States was just overwhelmingly powerful. France was kicked in the pants immediately. Uh, they were kicked out of the arrangement on the grounds that France was an enemy state and therefore the agreements with it, the treaties and so on, didn't mean anything. It was an enemy state because it had been under German occupation, so that got rid of France. Uh, left England and the United States. Uh, the, uh, uh, the British tried to hang on and the United States was not allowing them very much. Uh, there was a lot of conflict between Britain and the United States in the late 40s and the early 50s. It was pretty much resolved by the mid-50s un under the dictates of the stronger partner. You know. I mean, the United States wanted to keep Britain in the game. Uh, the reason for that was uh, stated uncautiously in a secret uh, discussion by a high Kennedy official, which later got declassified. He described England as our lieutenant, and then he said the fashionable word is partner. Uh, now, you don't tell the British about this. They're supposed to have delusions of partnership, but, you know, in secret, they are lieutenants. Uh, so we want to keep them viable. That's called the special relationship. Uh, and uh, by the 50s, it was a British, an Anglo-American condominium with the U.S. calling most of the shots, of course. Uh, now, uh, there's an earlier history, needless to say, and even if nobody remembers it here, they probably remember it elsewhere. So just in the case of, uh, of that, right, right after the First World War, uh, the British were having some problems holding together the empire. Britain was weakened by the First World War, and that meant it was kind of hard to keep the lid on things. Uh, and they had to get pretty violent, in fact, to do it. That's when the Amritsar massacre took place in India in 1919, with about 400 unarmed protesters massacred. Uh, there were similar problems in Iraq, and England didn't have the... Uh, uh, the manpower to put it down. They didn't have the troops at that point. So they decided to innovate and turn to terror bombing of villages for the first time, uh, which is cheaper. You know, you don't need a lot of force for that. Uh, now, the, uh, uh, also, uh, the terror bombing of villages was used even to collect, collect taxes from tribesmen and that sort of thing. Uh, and it was pretty effective. But it wasn't quite enough. The RAF, Royal Air Force Middle East Command, in 1919 requested authorization for the use of chemical weapons uh, as, uh, here's, uh, I'm quoting, against recalcitrant Arabs as experiment. Now, chemical weapons, that means poison gas. At the time, that was regarded with the ultimate horror. You know, this was right after the First World War. Uh, it was ultimate revulsion was poison gas. So they requested uh, authorization to do that. The India office didn't think it was a very bright idea. They thought it would have negative consequences. But they were overruled by the uh, Secretary of State at the War Office, 
uh, who uh, dismissed what he called this squeamishness over the use of gas, and he declared himself to be uh, strongly in favor of the use of poisoned gas uh, against uncivilized tribes. Uh, that was Winston Churchill, incidentally, one of the great moral heroes of the West. Uh, and uh, uh, it kind of went on from there. So, you know, there is an earlier history. Uh, but let's put that aside and turn to the post-Second World War period. Uh, the U.S. and Britain pretty much had it under control, but there was a break. There was a break in 1953 when Iran tried to take control of its own oil. That was taken care of with a CIA-backed coup. Uh, the big break, the serious one, was in 1958 when uh, Iraq had a, national, a, military, a nationalist officer's coup, which overthrew a dependent regime and took Iraq out of the, partially at least, out of the Anglo-American condominium. Well, that caused a furor in uh, Washington and London. Uh, one response was a marine landing in Lebanon the next day, the next day, to prop up the regime there. A second response was apparent authorization by Eisenhower of use of nuclear weapons in case any unfriendly forces went into Kuwait. Uh, third response was a set of decisions by Britain and the United States about how to handle the situation. And they, the way Kuwait at that time was more or less a colony, although they called it independent. Uh, and the British decided uh, that it would be a wise idea to give Kuwait at least nominal independence to try to undercut the possibility that a nationalist revolt might spread there. Uh, but, uh, however, reserving the right to intervene by force, or as they put it, ruthlessly to intervene if anything goes wrong, no matter who's responsible. Uh, and uh, the United States reserved the same right for the rest of the region. Uh, in fact, they jointly agreed that the oil fields of Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, and the other Emirates, uh, that they be kept in U.S.-British hands. Uh, they were very clear about the reasons. The reasons were, and they're important because they're still operative, and in fact more operative than ever, the reasons were first, Britain, Britain which had a, an ailing economy then, not worse now, but an ailing economy, uh, needed privileged access to the oil of Kuwait and crucially to investments from Kuwait in order to prop up its economy, which had to prop up sterling, which was extremely weak. So that was a major condition. Uh, now, by the early 1970s, those very same considerations were applying to the United States. The United States was losing its world dominance, in fact, it was seriously losing it from an economic point of view, and it began to need uh, not the oil so much, but the profits from oil. Oil creates huge profits, and control over those profits gives you plenty of power. Uh, and the United States started needing them. Uh, also, of course, control over oil gives you a good deal of influence over uh, people who need oil. It's a, it's a lever of world control, you know, a significant lever. But, so you've got several reasons. One, access to the oil on preferential terms. Two, a lever of world control. But three, just the profits alone. They're necessary. Uh, and by the early 70s, that was uh, beginning to be serious. Going back to 1958 for a moment, the National Security Council, that you know, the highest planning body, uh, in decisions that have now been partially declassified, there isn't too much declassification of U.S. records, incidentally, because the Reagan administration 
which had a kind of a fascist element to it, imposed very heavy restrictions on declassification. They didn't want the public to be able to see what's going on. So things get declassified now with very heavy restrictions, so much so that the State Department historians all quit a few months ago. But uh, anyhow, enough went through so you can see what was going on. The, the National Security Council decided in 58 after the Iraqi coup that the U.S. should be prepared to use force if needed uh, in order to secure British and American interests in the region, in Kuwait and other parts of the region. Uh, that tells us a lot about what's going on now. As I say, by the early 70s, the U.S. needed the investments uh, and beginning to need the access to the oil as much as the British did at that time. We're a little behind them in this. Uh, in fact, this is one of the, re the, there's been a very substantial capital flow from uh, the Gulf oil producers to England and the United States, other places too, but primarily England and the United States, and that's propped up their uh, uh, financial institutions, their corporations, uh, and their general economies. Just purchase of treasury securities by Saudi Arabia props up the American economy. In fact, when the oil price goes up, what in fact happens is dollars shift from one bank to another in New York and pounds shift from one bank to another in London to a large extent. Uh, prices go up, a lot of petrodollars, but they get spent, and they get spent on, uh, uh, on exports uh, and construction firms and so on, primarily in, the, uh, in England and the United States, and a lot of it goes straight to, you know, they purchase up parts of ailing banks and uh, treasury securities and so on. That's been a big shot in the arm for the U.S. Uh, and British economies, British for a long time and the United States for the last 20 years. That's a good reason for keeping control over this system. Uh, these are all good reasons. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the United States and England have not been particularly opposed to rises in the oil price. In fact, sometimes they favored it. After the big near quadrupling of oil prices in the early 70s, that actually improved the British and American economies, helped them. The balance of trade between the United States and the oil producers improved in the U.S. favor, you know, after the oil price went up, at quadrupled. That's uh, for exactly the reasons I mentioned. Uh, also, uh, the rise in oil prices uh, helps countries that produce high-cost oil. There are two such countries, primarily, the United States and England. Uh, the oil corporations knew about Alaska oil a long time ago but it wasn't profitable enough. After the price quadrupled in the early 70s, it became profitable, very profitable, so they started producing it. Same with North Sea oil. All of that is good, and also quite apart from that, the energy corporations are all U.S., I mean, with some minor exceptions, they're basically U.S. British, and their profits go up as the oil price goes up. So these are all parts of the system, important parts. Well, you know, without going on, you put all these things together, you see some pretty good reasons why two countries are getting ready to go to war, to, just as they said they were going to do back in the late 50s, and probably since, but we don't have documents since. We do have documents up to then, and we know what they say, and they make a lot of sense. And you can look at the record since and see it follows the same lines. Well, there's one final point to make about this, and here we really do speculate. Uh, that has to do with the current world system. And take a look at what the current world system is like. You know, there's a lot of talk about this fabled new world order, and there's something to it. You know, there, is, there are changes in the world. In fact, there have been changes in the world for the last 20 years, and in important ones. About 20 years ago, it was becoming quite clear that economic power was diffusing 
in U.S. domains. There were, it was diffusing into three major power centers, German-led Europe, Japan and its region, and the United States and its region. The United States is still the biggest, you know, but not very much anymore. And in fact, the Reaganite policies severely harmed the American economy, and it's gonna, those costs have not yet come due, but they're serious. Uh, the Vietnam War harmed the American economy. It was very costly to the United States, very beneficial to the industrial rivals of the United States. And all of that stuff changed the structure of the world economy. That's a major part of the New World Order. Three major powers, the U.S., especially after Reagan, now deeply in debt and much weakened. Uh, that's part of the New World Order. Uh, what about the Russian, five minutes, yeah, I'm just about done. What about the disappearance of the Soviet Union? Well, by the mid-70s, it was pretty clear that the Russians were in bad trouble. In fact, their military expenditures started leveling off, uh, exactly the opposite of what we were told at the time, but the CIA has now conceded it. And by a couple of years later, it's pretty f clear that they're finished. Uh, and the effect of that is, there's several effects to that. One effect is rhetorical. Since 1917, every, sing every American intervention anywhere has been in defense against the Russians. That's, you know, like when the U.S. Uh, began to support fascist Italy back in 1922, as they did. That was in defense against the Russians, and everything up until then has been in defense against the Russians. By about 1988, that becomes impossible. I mean, even the most fertile imagination can't say we're defending ourselves against the Russians. Uh, so you need other excuses. That's one change, new rhetorical framework. Uh, the invasion of Panama was historic in this respect. I mean, it's just like everything that's been going on for a couple hundred years in most respects, but it was different in that you couldn't say we were defending ourselves against the Russians. So one change is rhetorical, and that's happening again in the Gulf. A second change is more significant. The uh, Soviet Union and its empire are now opened up freely to Western exploitation. That is, they're reverting to what they were before 1917 quasi-colonial dependencies of the industrial West. And that's a big change. Uh, but of course, the United States and Britain are not ahead in that game. Germany's ahead, and Japan, when it decides to get into it, will be ahead. But Britain and the United States are not capital-rich countries. They can't do that. Uh, so that's a second development, not good for the United States and Britain. Third major development is that uh, although the world is tripolar economically, it's got one military power. And furthermore, that military power is now a lot more free to use military force than ever before because there's no deterrent any longer. Soviet deterrent is gone. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, the United States could not have sent massive conventional armies uh, to the Middle East. Now it can do anything it feels like. Uh, that gives the U.S. a lot more freedom to use force. Well, you put these things together and you get a certain picture. The, everything I say about the United States is also true of England, but at a much lower scale, so I'll put them behind. I'll keep the, the lieutenant out of the story. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, we have three major military powers, three major economic powers, one major military power. That military power doesn't any longer have the economic base to carry off intervention. Well, some consequences follow, and they're drawn. So, for example, when Dep Deputy Secretary of State Lawrence Eagleburger was testifying to Congress a couple of weeks ago about the New World Order, he said the New World Order will be based on what he called a kind of new invention in the art of diplomacy. Namely, we carry out intervention, other people pay for it. Well, who's going to pay for it? 
British and the Germans and the Japanese are not that happy about paying for it. They're quite happy to see the United States and England go down the tube so they win the Second World War. They're not going to pay for it. Uh, and there's only one other big, third, big, big uh, source of capital in the world. Uh, that's the Gulf oil producers. In fact, that's the way you make the Germans and the Japanese pay for it via the oil price coming back here. Okay, so that's the way you pay for it. Uh, uh, the, however, notice that there is a shared interest with Germany and Japan and the whole industrial world. Namely, somebody has to keep the third world under control. This war against the world that's been going on for the last 500 years, it still has to go on. And somebody's got to be there to make sure it works. You know, you try with the IMF and all that stuff, that's cost effective, but sooner or later you need the Marines you know, or the B-52s or something. And the United States is the only country that can do it, Britain secondarily, but primarily the United States. So somebody has to play the enforcer role. Uh, and uh, that's got to be us. And that is now being openly discussed in the international business press, for example, where it's pointed out that the U.S. must play even more than before what's called the mercenary role. The United States has to be the Hessians, uh, the guys who uh, put down, who keep the third world under control and other people pay for it. If there's a diplomatic settlement, it's of no particular advantage to the United States. If there's a capitulation to force, it's of considerable advantage to the United States. It shows that our comparative advantage is important. Our comparative advantage is in the use of force, certainly not in diplomacy. We've always been against diplomacy, but not even anymore economically. However, force, we rank supreme. If you can show that force is the crucial device for controlling the world, you're better off. And I think that's another reason why you got two powers sitting there in the Gulf. Incidentally, the oil producers recognize this from their own point of view. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, days ago, in fact, there was a, an article in the Wall Street Journal which quoted a high Gulf official as saying that he didn't see any reason for his son to die in Kuwait because we have our white slaves to do that. He hadn't looked very carefully at the skin color of the mercenaries there, uh, and he'd also forgotten for a moment that the guys with the guns are going to call the shots, and if he gets out of line, he'll learn that very fast. Uh, but apart from that, it's sort of true. Uh, there are, last comment, there are domestic developments in the United States that are tending in the same direction. It's not a big secret that the, you know, so-called infrastructure is collapsing, the educational system's collapsing, the health system's collapsing. Uh, the inner cities are being destroyed. You may have seen the statistics that were published a couple of days ago on prison population in the United States. Uh, the United States is way ahead of anybody else in per capita prison population, way ahead of South Africa and Russia, which used to be up ahead of us. Uh, for a black male, the probability of being in prison in the United States is four times as high as in South Africa under apartheid. That tells you something. All of this reflects uh, uh, an internal third world, you know, that's, uh, the, the, the business is worried. I mean, they're not worried because too many people are in jail. They're worried because half the jobs in the next decade or so have to be filled by blacks and Hispanics. And if you keep them in jail and in, you know, uh, concentration camps called cities and so on, they're not going to be able to do any of the work that you need done. So they're expecting a big shortage of skilled labor, and that means that, uh, transnational corporations are going to shift those operations that involve skilled labor overseas to where there is skilled labor, educated populations, and so on. 
Uh, that means everything from research and management and so on to product development and you know guys to push buttons on computers and so on and so forth. Uh, what happens to the United States? Well, you know maybe these guys can't uh, uh, do research, but they can truck around the desert so they can be Hessians. Uh, that's another factor that's pressing in the same direction. Now that's pretty much what the future is going to look like if it goes on the way it does. Uh, it's not for the usual victims, it's like always. For the citizens of the mercenary states, it's also not particularly attractive if they let it happen, and it might happen. That's the way things are moving. It's another thing that's going on in the Gulf. Well, what about policy choices? Your policy choices depend on what your goals are. If the goal had been to get Iraq out of Kuwait and to uh, settle, you know, to reduce regional tensions and to move, you know, make a move towards a slightly more decent world, you would use sanctions and diplomacy and the peaceful means required by international law. If the goal, however, is to uh, firm up the mercenary enforcer role and to establish the rule of force in the world, if that's the goal, then the policy choices that the Bush administration has picked have a certain chilling logic to them. Thank you very much, Noam. Um, just for your information, I'd like everybody in 10 to 50 to realize there are actually more people um, that are outside of two, 10 to 50 who are watching this event this evening. And for those of, uh, who are outside and are still concerned about whether they can be able to make the necessary questions or comments, we will um, allow these to be written down and these can be passed to the usher and then will be brought here and randomly selected for, for anyone who's outside 10 to 50. The second announcement I'd like to make before getting on with our second speaker is that we have the specific list of events that will be taking place in the Peace Center this evening, and Rich Cohen will read those out. Thanks. This is a continuation in some cases of the workshops that took place yesterday. Uh, there will be a table on the third floor of the Student Center when the group moves over to the Student Center after the beginning of the question and answer uh, session. The question and answer session will continue in the Student Center and sometime toward uh, the, the beginning to the middle of that question and answer session, people will break up into these working groups, organizing groups. There will be three small group discussions. Uh, one led by Geetha from MIT, one led by David from MIT, one led by Marcy from Brandeis, in the, in the, in probably in the private dining rooms on the third floor. Uh, the Gender Gap Working Group by Real Men of Boston and Ecological Transportation Group will not be meeting tonight, uh, but there will be a sign-up sheet for those activities, a sign-up sheet so that you can get connected with the next meeting of those groups. The Ecological Group is meeting Friday. The newspaper creation workshop of a daily anti-war organizing newspaper that will take place with Steve Penn from MIT, political art and, and uh, painting Marianne Donnelly from MIT. Political organizing, that will be me and that will be combined with some other people who are working on the direct action group. The letter writing, the letter writing 
and, and Computer Communications Task Force, Erica from Brandeis and John from Harvard. There'll be uh, the direct action meeting. Um, the direct action meeting will be announced a little bit later when we get over there. And then there's going to be an MIT caucus. Not all the people here are here from, are here from MIT, but those of you who are, Penn Law will have a meeting over there. We're still here in this room, everybody. We're not going over there yet. We still have one more speaker before we go over to the Student Center. And I'll introduce Michael Albert and here. Our second speaker for the evening is perhaps probably the most notorious uh, student organizer from MIT. He was actually at one point um, the MIT Undergraduate Association president. He um, co-founded the South End Press and uh, the Z Magazine. And here, here he is, Michael Albert. When I came here 25 years ago, it was to be a physicist. I, uh, I loved it. I was pretty good at it. I was comfortable with it. This was probably the best place in the country to, or at least one of the best places in the country to become educated as a physicist. When I left here, I had been educated to be something else. I was a person instead of a physicist. I was just a feeling, thinking person. I wound up a revolutionary. That's what I left here as. That's what I was taught to be. I was taught by Noam and by the social movements of the time. A revolutionary meaning a person who felt that the reason why we had the atrocity of Vietnam, the reason why we had the atrocity that the civil rights movement confronted and that the women's movement confronted and that the other movements of that time confronted, was because of the basic underlying institutions of our society and that they had to be changed. The reason I was notorious while I was here is because of my response to things that went on in this institution at that time. And there are undoubtedly parallel things that go on today. One of those things, for example, was a project to stabilize helicopters. It was ostensibly to stabilize helicopters so that they could fly over Detroit and evaluate traffic patterns. When we broke onto the airport where those helicopters were and photographed them, we came back with the photographs, we were able to prove what we said all along, which was that the helicopters were gunships and that the stabilization process was to be able to shoot the peasants and the fields in Vietnam more accurately. Jesse said, studying war no more last night, and we tried to do that. Another project that was going on here at MIT at the time was to develop a radar system a radar system that could guide bombs so that the bombs would literally be smart and find their target better. We didn't know about that. We found out about it later. And those smart bombs were part of the worst bombing run in the Vietnam War at its conclusion. Other projects included ideological projects associated with justifying the war. Uh, one of the faculty people here, Ithiel de Sola Poole, would regularly interrogate Vietnamese prisoners. My response to all of this and much more was a great deal of anger. Anger which you can probably already perceive here tonight. And at that time, I allowed that anger to show. I expressed it. I screamed it when need be. And I demonstrated with it. And that was considered moderately insane and made me notorious. <laughs> and in the 25 years since then, 
I've kept that anger down. You know how when you walk down the street over on Boylston Street and you see somebody grabbing food out of a garbage can or somebody asks you for a quarter and they're in pretty decrepit shape and you try and keep going and you try and get by it and you close yourself off to it a little bit. Well, for the 25 years between then and now, I've been a revolutionary. I've been an activist. I've been involved all the time with addressing the same questions, but I've also closed off a little to the emotions and the anger and the energy that you feel because of those phenomena. And the reason for that is because of the relative absence of large social movements, which were present when I was here at MIT and which gave an outlet. And the reason I'm in quite a bit of turmoil tonight is because some of those shields are starting to come down. And that's because, for example, today there were 50,000 people in the streets of Seattle protesting what's going on. It's because, it's because, if the reports I'm hearing are correct, there were three or 4,000 people occupying the main postal center in the city of Chicago. What I want to do tonight is to try and talk about the broader context and the causes and what we can do about it with the intention that in Boston in the coming days, we'll have the militants of those 3,000 people who are in the postal office in Chicago and the numbers of the 50,000 or 75,000 people who are in the streets of Seattle marching. And we will be able to have an impact on this city and on the nation in that manner. For me, what's happening right now, as bad as it is, as unbelievably surreal as it is with this deadline, is really just one part of a phenomenon that exists all the time. And it's the war of the developed West, basically the United States, on the whole third world. And that's the thing that I turned off my sensitivity to a little bit in those 25 years, and which roused me so much then and is again. I'm going to have a little trouble reading this, but I will. It is an attempt to try and encapsulate the scale and the magnitude of the crimes that Noam has been documenting for the last 25 years. I, over the course of that time, have been Noam's publisher and have not only read his words, but have often typeset them and laid them out. And the process often leaves me throwing rocks at the sides of buildings, my own building. Regrettably, there's no social movement powerful enough during that period of time to channel that kind of energy. Recently, I wrote something to try and, and encapsulate the scale of the crimes that I feel go on in the world and that I feel we have to address. Suppose a hypothetical god got tired of what we humans do to one another and decided that from January 1st, 1999 onward, all corpses created by violence or neglect anywhere in the free world would cease to decompose. Anyone dying for want of food or medicine, anyone hunk, hung or garroted to death, shot or beaten to death, raped or bombed to death, anyone dying unjustly and inhumanely in countries of the free world, would, as a corpse, persist without decomposing. And the permanent corpse would then automatically enter a glass-walled cattle claw 
attached to an ethereal train traveling across the United States, state by state, never stopping. One by one, the corpses would be loaded on the killing train. And after every thousand corpses piled in, a new car would hitch up and begin filling also. Mile after mile, the killing train would roll along, each corpse viewed through walls of transparent glass. 200 new corpses a minute. One new car every five minutes, day and night without pause. By the end of 1991, on its first birthday, the killing train would measure over 2,000 miles long. Traveling at 20 miles an hour, it would take about five days to pass through an intersection. By the year 2000, assuming no dramatic change in institutions and behavior, the train would stretch from coast to coast seven times. It would take about six weeks from the time its engine passed the Statue of Liberty to when its caboose would go by, full of corpses, preventable deaths, every death in there preventable. Think how young children somehow sometimes point to a picture in a book or a magazine and ask for an explanation. Tell me about a tree, a car, a boat, a train, a big train, a killing train. Try and answer that. Think about the pain that radiates from the Vietnam War Monument with its 50,000 names. Imagine the lost opportunity and lost love and the network of negative influences that radiate from the unnecessary deaths engraved on that monument. Now think about the killing train, stretching from coast to coast and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Consider its impact, not only on those on board, but on every person that any of those corpses ever loved or would have loved, fed or would have fed, taught or would have taught. Who rides the killing train? Citizens of the third world, selling their organs for food, selling their babies to save their families, suffering disappearances, diseases, starvation, mass murder. They live in Brazil, the Philippines, El Salvador, South Africa, and New York City. They are headed for the killing train every day, millions of them. When 10 million people die, when 10 million children die yearly for lack of basic medical care that the U.S. could provide, at almost no cost, in countries whose economies Exxon and the Bank of America have looted, what can you call it other than mass murder? Bloated, diseased bodies are victims of murder just as surely as bullet-riddled bodies tossed into rivers by death squads. Denying medicine is no less criminal than supplying torture rocks and stealing resources. That's the background of international relations, at least as I see it, that made me a revolutionary. Why does Bush want war? It seems to me that Bush wants war partly, minimally. I suppose I should say it's obvious that he doesn't want war because we oppose violation of national sovereignty, as Noam made clear. If we opposed violation of national sovereignty, we wouldn't support the Israelis in their violation of Lebanon's sovereignty. We wouldn't support Syria in their violation of it. We wouldn't support Turkey. We wouldn't support uh, we wouldn't support the United States in its violation of Panama's sovereignty, of Grenada's sovereignty, of South Africa, of many countries throughout the world. That's not the issue. Price of oil isn't the issue. The control of the price of oil is a serious issue. Insofar as the United States is no longer a viable and a serious economic force in the world as it once was, the control of oil is one economic card that we can hold, and we want to keep holding it. That's a powerful reason. 
But it's not sufficient to explain the drive toward war. It's only sufficient to explain the desire to get Hussein out of Kuwait. I think the drive toward war is explained by something else, which Noam also brought up. And that's the desire, as he described, to have a new world order in which American might is a function no longer of, in part, economic power and in part military power, but basically entirely military power. For those who are old enough, paladin, have gun, will travel. The difference is, is that the people who pay will pay because we have the gun also. We will force them to pay. That's the future Bush has in mind. What, uh, what do people do about this? Now, I know that you all know that what you do is you protest, what you do is you demonstrate, what you do is you march, you rally, you do civil disobedience, you educate, you hold teach-ins, you talk to people. I'd like to provide what I hope will be some useful lessons. They're very simple. They're almost transparently obvious, I think. But they're hard to keep in mind. And they can inform our activity and give us a strength that can help us in the period ahead. The first lesson, the most trivial and obvious, and in many ways the most important and the hardest to keep in mind, is that organizing works. It really does work. When I, when I came here in 1965, there were anti-war demonstrations in Boston. They were small, they were held at the common, they were minuscule compared to what's happening right now. And MIT actually participated to a small extent. A small number of MIT students would go over and throw rocks at the demonstrators. <laughs> no lie. That was about the extent of MIT student participation in anti-war demonstrations in the year 1964 and 1965. In 1969, as mentioned, I was elected the Undergraduate Association President at MIT. The platform included no more war research, no more grades at MIT, no more requirements, open admissions for working class people and people of color, $100,000 indemnity payment for the Black to the Black Panther Party. There were about 10 more similar planks on the platform on which I was elected in an election which I suspect until this time is still the one that invo involved more, more students than any other probably in MIT's history. It certainly involved the administration in a, in a significant way campaigning for the other candidates. The difference between 1965 and 1969 was that in the interim, students on this campus, like the ones who set up the Peace and Justice Center, in fact identical to them, had gone into the dorms and talked one-to-one -one with people. They had held meetings with people in which people were entreated and helped to express what they really felt about what was going on. And we'll come a bit later to what, in fact, they really did feel and what our response was. We did all sorts of demonstrations. We painted the walls of MIT. At other schools, that might not be so relevant, but in MIT, I'll tell you one more. Every once in a while, I'll do a little anecdote about MIT. MIT, is, MIT produces technocrats. Harvard produces ruling class elite who make decisions. BU produces people who fill middle level strata. I didn't know that at first, but when I was here early on, I went over and I sat in on a few classes at BU. And I was astounded. I was astounded by their magnitude by the absolute lack of participation of anybody in anything having to do with education, any student, by the utter uh, 
dissociation of the faculty from the students by a lot of characteristics. Then I went up to Harvard. There I was blown away. I was blown away by the fact that they had plush rugs in the classrooms, <laughs> that they lived in suites that were small-scale miniature models of boardrooms, that they were literally, <laughs> that, that, that everything about the school was structured in such a way as to produce a certain kind of, of product, not a person, mind you, but an elite CEO, politician, etc. Then I came back to MIT. Before this, I had no notion that MIT was anything other than a school, good school. I came back to MIT and I looked around, and it was quite a contrast. I saw gray walls as far as you could see. I saw faculty who would come in and, and write textbooks on the wall. I saw an utter lack, an, a complete absence of emotion. Such an absence of emotion that probably the most important thing I did as an organizer was exhibit emotion. That's how bad it was. <laughs> no lie. Now, and then I began to understand why. And, the, and what I understood was because it's because this place means to produce a certain product. And the product is a very, a very well-trained, a very capable, a very brilliant in many cases, scientist or engineer, who will solve any problem, any problem, so long as it's of some interest and so long as somebody will pay. If somebody would pay MIT graduates to create weapons to shoot down B-52s, and it was an interesting problem, they'd rush to it. But nobody will pay that. And so instead, they create stabilization programs for helicopters and smart bombs and MIRVs and all the rest. And they do it without so much as a wrinkle of moral question, because for them it's not a moral issue. It's simply a technical scientific issue. That's what this place produces. So the kind of organizing that we did was relevant to that. We did things like painting the walls. We took all the couches, what few of them there were, and put them in public places so people could sit in them and talk to each other. We went into classes and we confronted people loudly, exhibiting anger and emotion. And we marched, then we held teach-ins, and we had rallies, and we had explanations and information, and then we had occupations, and then we had even more militant demonstrations. And in 1969, most of this campus moved over to the Boston Common, not to throw rocks at the demonstration, but to join it. So the first lesson is that organizing can move people even people who are subject to the kind of socialization that this place can generate. The second lesson is that people can be moved for the long or only for the short term. It's a hard lesson to get to, although it's on the face of it very simple. Some of you who were there will remember a May Day demonstration held back then. This was a demonstration in which people were supposed to go to Washington to shut down the city and end the war. The idea was to disrupt traffic and distress, disrupt the functioning of the city. The problem was that the organizing for, not the conception, the conception of going to Washington and disrupting, that was fine. The problem was the way the organizing was done. It was an example of what I like to call apocalyptic organizing. People like Rennie Davis, Tom Hayden, Jerry Rubin, as a sidebar, Rennie Davis wound up an insurance salesman. Tom Hayden wound up <laughs> 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 
Well, Tom Hayden at one time thought liberals were the lowest form of human life if he would deign to call them human, and he wound up barely a liberal. And Jerry Rubin is some kind of a some kind of a neo-capitalist on Wall Street. These three folks, along among some others, organized for this May Day demonstration. And what they would do is they would come to places like this, and they would speak to large audiences. And they were very good speakers. In fact, Rennie Davis was perhaps the best speaker I've ever heard. Um, and they would, they would motivate powerfully, but often with hyperbole, and often without information, and often with a promise that bore no semblance of reality. Come to Washington, we'll shut down the city, and we'll end the war. People went to Washington, disrupted the city, but the war went on. And when they went home, having been organized without any real fundamental understanding of the tenacity of the war and of the basic institutions that caused it, many of them would become disgruntled and dismayed and lose their, their commitment. Other people, among them Noam, Leslie Kagan, who's currently the chief organizer 25 years later of uh, the event on January 26th, Dave Dellinger, who undoubtedly will be a speaker there and is still doing that, and many, many others, notice all of them still involved, still committed in the same way, would organize in a different way. They would try to motivate and to arouse and to confront, but they would also provide information and analysis and an honest perception of what was possible and what it meant to build a movement, that success was building a larger movement, that success was raising consciousness, that you didn't have to come home, turn on the TV and see an end of a war to feel success, to feel that what you were doing was part of a process that was building something worthwhile. You can organize for the short term and get a big bang, or you can organize for the long term and generally get just as large an immediate demonstration and way more commitment. The third lesson is that you can organize people around symbols or around reality. At, the, at MIT, one of the things we did is we organized around the instrumentation labs where much of that research was going on. At Princeton, they organized around a math building, I forget the name of it, where research was going on. At MIT, the culmination of our work around the instrumentation labs, which included a citywide coalition that came here for a demonstration to block those labs, which were actually a, partly a military installation, and so there were, there were troops here, there were literally people on top of the buildings with guns, uh, um, and all the other paraphernalia that you'd expect. The resolution of this was that they, geriman they, they redefined the I-labs to be not on the campus. They just called them something else, and they, they, they named them after, I forget the name of the guy. But anyway, they moved them off the campus. And, uh, and, and some, some of the people who had been organized were lost because of that. Because the organizing focused so strongly, not that it shouldn't have been concerned with the I-labs, but so strongly with the I-labs, and not enough with the underlying issues and the underlying structure that they could be lost. At Princeton, the building's in the middle of the campus. They redefined the borders of the campus so that that plot of ground was no longer a part of Princeton. The thing still sat there. It was still functioning in the exact same way. Instrumentation, sorry. That's where the helicopter stuff and the smart bombs were done. So you can organize around that or you can organize around the basic institutions. People can be moved narrowly or broadly. 
We could go out and we can organize now, and there's a tremendous desire to do it, and I feel it too, about war and peace and not bother with justice. We could skip the links to racism. We could skip the links to sexism. We could skip the links to poverty. We could skip the links to homophobia. We could skip all that because, hey, in two hours, we may have bombs raining from the sky. It would be a mistake. It is not the way to organize a movement. It is not the way to make the most powerful statement that can be made, and it is not the way to create a movement that can sustain itself. We're going to come in a bit to why I think that's the case. Last lesson is that moving people really does matter. If you look back at the history of the opposition among elites to the war, after all, if we do get out, if we do, if we do decide not to start the war in Iraq, or if we go in and then we stop the war, it will be elites, after all, who make that decision, who, who put their name on that decision. So you have to look at how do they respond, what do they respond to in making decisions about war and peace or for that matter, about any other social issue. If you look at the record of the, of the speeches of the senators and the Congress people from the period of the Vietnam War and of the CEOs and lawyers and doctors and so on who were mo public enough figures to go public when they became doves, as it was called, when they decided they were against the war, you find over and over again that they give one variant or another the same speech. That speech doesn't talk about the lives of the Vietnamese people. It doesn't talk about the lives of American GIs. It does not talk about resources taken away from this society, from the United States, which cannot go to bettering situation here. It doesn't mention those things. The Congress people, the senators, they didn't mention any of that. When they changed sides, when they said that they were no longer against the war, they said, our streets are in turmoil. We're losing the next generation. There's the, there's the possibility that all these people who are demonstrating are going to soon challenge the basic institutions in addition to the war. What they said was, for me, the social cost of pursuing a policy I want to pursue, the war, is too high. These movements are raising costs that are so high that I can no longer pursue what I really want to pursue. George Bush does not give a shit about dead American GIs. He does not care. And it's important to understand that if we're going to understand what we have to do to get him and the powers behind him to react. He does not care. He doesn't even conceive that, that there's anything, that there's any issue to care about of dead Iraqis or dead Jordanians or dead Palestinians. That isn't even a concept for him. He does not care about huge sums of money going into the military and not into dealing with racism or crumbling school systems or crumbling infrastructure or a lack of housing in the United States. Not only doesn't he care about that, I think that's a significant part of the purpose. He does care about the possibility of social movements challenging capital, challenging his rule, challenging the two-party system challenging the, the basic institutions of patriarchy. He cares about no business as usual. He cares about disruption. He cares about dissent. If he cares about a dead GI, it's because it might provoke dissent. 
That's all. If he cares about any of these issues, it's because it might provoke dissent. That tells us that not only does organizing work, but that the product of organizing, dissent, and demonstrations also can work. They can win. They can make change. They can change policies. They can change basic trends. They can change the consciousness of a nation. If you look at this country now and you look at this country at the start of the Vietnam War, you'll see that the movements in the interim have had an unbelievably powerful effect on the psyche of America. What we learn from what they respond to is that it's necessary to have movements that have more than one tactic. A demonstration in Washington is a powerful thing. It displays large numbers of people who are dissenting. A demonstration in Washington, which is accompanied by a civil disobedience demonstration, is a more powerful thing. It says not only are people demonstrating, but they are then moving on to disrupt, to civilly disobey. And everybody knows that the commitment and the involvement and the consciousness change that's associated with that leak means a lasting commitment. And so the threat to the interest that they hold dear is that much greater. We have to make our dissent visible and militant. We have to have a movement which has a place for people just moving, just beginning, and a place for people whose anger and whose consciousness and whose awareness has gotten to the point where they're ready to do civil disobedience. What is it about the United States that makes it so hard to organize? I'll pick up the pace, but I do want to address this a bit. Um, it's part of it. We live in a country that has an economy that's capitalist. It's profit-oriented. It has private ownership. It has competitive markets. It has 30 billionaires and 31 million poor people. We live in a country that has a culture that's racist, ethnocentric, violent, exclusionary. We live in a country that has a kinship arrangements that are sexist, patriarchal, homophobic, political arrangements that call themselves democratic but are actually muddy-driven and media-dominated. And I thought democratic in the sense that elites had a degree of democracy, but I'm even beginning to wonder about that now, uh, given Bush's power and his capability to override elite dissent, of which there is plenty. These institutions create hierarchies among us, class hierarchies, gender hierarchies, race hierarchies, and they create consciousnesses that make it hard for us to act. Passivity, cynicism, a belief that nothing better is possible. They also create an intelligentsia that's bought off, that's more interested in its well-being, financial well-being, than in the truth. A bought media, powerful police. These things make organizing difficult. These sets of institutions breed the international relations, the international outcomes I described. They also read, breed domestic problems. We're the richest country in the world, far and away. We have 31 million poor people. There are 3 million people in the United States homeless who eat garbage can dinners and sleep in alleys, the richest country in the world. 40% of all Latino children and 50% of all black children go up poor. Half of all black children go up poor. 
One person in 20 in the United States suffers some form of burglary, assault, rape, or murder each year. There are 250 reported rapes daily, one every six minutes, probably 10 times that number of unreported rapes. There's a brutal beating of a woman every 19 seconds, probably more. There's one successful suicide in the United States every 20 minutes and 10 times that number that fail in the richest country in the world. That's the product of, of institutional structures that are based on class division, gender division, race division, and political elitism. The reason I became a revolutionary is because I believed that those problems were not accidents, they weren't bad policies, they were natural outgrowth of those underlying structures. One half of 1% of all U.S. citizens hold one-third of all U.S. wealth. The average CEO, chairman of a corporation, earns as much as 93 factory workers or 72 teachers, and they earn that not counting the interest that they earn. Those 30 billionaires, those folks are earning $2 million a week in interest. When I came here, I was, this is, I was rushed to a fraternity. MIT has a fraternity system. I want to explain something about why it's hard to organize people myself. And the fraternities were sort of a, a plus, um, at least at that time, those of us who went into them, we thought they were more social, better place to live. It's arguably not true, but we felt that. And we were rushed. <coughs> and I went to rush week. And from my perspective, what I saw during rush week was I was ushered into the building, and I got good food, and people were wonderful and nice and friendly, and I was catered to, and they attempted to try and get me to join their various fraternities. This would last for a period of time, and it's a very active time, and this tremendous effort. I joined a fraternity, uh, and then we went through what's called, uh, uh, wh what do you call it when you get into a fraternity? And Pledging. And that went on for, for four months or so. MIT is too sophisticated for the normal kind of hazing. Sophisticated. Remember, this is the place building smart bombs. MIT is too sophisticated for the normal kind of hazing. So instead what they did is they had the freshmen clean the place every Friday night from about 8 o'clock until about 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, at MIT, you don't have that much time to yourself. So it's not a small thing to work from 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning cleaning the floors and then cleaning them again and then cleaning them again for four months. At the end of that four months, we were inducted as full-fledged members of fraternity. And we went to a meeting and they told us something very interesting. They told us that during rush week, they had tapped the telephones in the fraternity where we stayed over. And they had bugged the rooms. Tapped the telephones and bugged the rooms. And we asked why. And they said, well, you had to make a difficult decision very quickly, where to live. And we researched you folks, and we were calmer and older and more mature, and we were in a better position to make that decision than you. So what we did is we tapped the phones and we bugged the rooms so that we would hear what you would say when you called your parents or, in, at that time, your, I don't know what, at that time it was your girlfriend and it was all men or any other friend, and you described what you were interested in. So if I called somebody and said, this place is really nice, but nobody plays tennis, 7 o'clock the next morning, tennis game for me. 
No lie. If I said, I thought, I thought that I'd have more intellectual stimulation here. I thought there'd be more people who would be into physics, and they wanted me. Oh, I forgot to mention. This was for the people who they wanted. The people, the, the process was a two-tiered one in the fraternity when I went into. They had a little chain. People would, because you could go any, to any living group that you wanted to try and become a part of, and they, they literally researched all incoming freshmen, and they knew who they wanted. Everybody who they didn't want, they just funneled through the building, out the door, and into the back alley. The ones they wanted went upstairs, and they tried to get you to stay over so they could tap your phone and, and bug your room. <laughs> now, the reason I bring this story up is because when they told, if they had told us the day after rush week, if they had told me the day after rush week that they tapped my phone, I would have gone berserk. Berserk. But when they told me after five months of hazing that they tapped my phone, in other words, after I had invested only 20 Friday nights, <laughs> but still 20 Friday nights, and after I had become friends and become involved and gotten some status associated with this fraternity, when they told me and the 20 other incoming freshmen, we all took it. We didn't do shit. We didn't get upset. We were part of the gang. We abided by it. Well, for some reason that I don't know, something happened in me, and, and I, I had a little trouble with it. But I didn't quit. I just sort of thought about it. And I stayed in the fraternity for the next six months. And actually, I was sort of the, I was pretty verbal and, and outgoing. And I was sort of the fair-haired you know, up-and-comer of the fraternity. And they even, they, they chart your life. They charted that I was going to be their candidate for UAP four years later. Irony of ironies. It's the truth. It's the honest truth. Well, at the end of the year, I went home for the summer, and I started writing to some of the freshmen with me. And I decided that I had been a fool, and, and, and I decided to leave. And I came back, and the first political thing I did was I sat on a, the fender of a car outside A-Pi. Alpha Epsilon Pi was the fraternity. And I told the freshmen who were coming in rush week what was going on. <laughs> well, what happened, what happened was very amusing. There was a brawl. Half the fraternity wanted to get me. The other half didn't want the embarrassment of their having gotten me. And they fought with each other. <laughs> this is amusing. But what's really, what's, what's the, the point of this story? is that in subsequent weeks, the rest of my class, or all but five or six of them, left that fraternity. And that group of people became the core of what was called Rosa Luxemburg SDS. And that group of people is the group of people who did what was done here at MIT, along with others. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing, to distinguish me or any other of the others of those people from everybody else in the freshman class except the trauma and the, the mindset change that was associated, in this case, not with understanding imperialism, but with understanding a form of local feudalism in this fraternity. And the, uh, and the opening of ourselves that it led to, to understanding something about the world and the radicalization that ensued. Notice that it only took 20 Friday nights to hold us off for six months plus the socialization of the gray walls and the promise of being a big physicist and all the rest of that. Everybody in the United States 
has some forces working on them that make it very hard to move to the left. There's the socialization. There's ignorance among many. There's, there's literal ignorance, literal belief in the lies. There's the pressures of maintaining your family or of trying to get yourself in there. And there's the awareness that I think really exists deep down in most people that opposition has an implication, that going to the demonstrations once leads to going twice, and that going twice leads to going five times. And everybody knows that the first step is the big step. The first time you go do CD is the big time because you might just get sucked in. It might become your life. Instead of being the physicist, you might, well, whatever. And to build a movement that's going to attract people over that hurdle means building a movement that is not so abrasive that it's less fun and less pleasant and less empowering to be in than a classroom at MIT. It means building a movement that's not so sexist that women literally can't stand it. It means building a movement that is not so dominated by white culture that black people and Latino people find it just as abhorrent as a society outside. It means building a movement that's not so hierarchical that it, that it replicates the Congress. And it means... <laughs> and it means, and this I think, although it's the least talked about thing, is probably the hardest thing. It means building a movement in which a few intellectuals don't dominate everybody else, in which we don't replicate class structure, not just race and gender and sexual and the other structures outside, but also class structure. It means creating a movement that will welcome people and that will empower people of all backgrounds and that will respect the fact that, by and large, they know a whole lot more about what's wrong with the country and about what should be done to the country than the people who have the training to be eloquent and to dominate decision-making and to dominate discussions. And we have to be attuned to that. I think we should... <laughs> I think we should stop, but I do want to ask, make one plea. I heard this evening, I don't have the details, but I heard this evening that tomorrow there will be civil disobedience at the federal building. There will also be some actions that will be hard for people to, to move into um, that will be by smaller groups, I guess, in, in, in other places. And I, I can't identify them because I don't know the details. But there will be civil disobedience at the federal building. I'm quite sure there will also be marches and rallies. And I suspect there will also be teach-ins. Do whatever it is that's comfortable for you to do. But do something. Because... Because... The people who are for the war have an excuse not to do something. But I bet everybody here is against the war. And I bet everybody here is against all of the implications of the war. And to be against the war, and to be against all of the implications of the war, and to do nothing, is hypocrisy. And you have to think about that. And it's very important for people to act in the way that you want to, in the manner that you want to, with others who you choose, but to do it. And if we do, I think we can have a serious impact. Let's do the questions and answers.
Dallas yeah, while we're doing questions. Okay, yeah. just two announcements. Um, more information about the civil dis disobedience that Michael Albert spoke about. Um, it says, put the brakes on war. Let's not go to war for our gasoline. And the plan is to block traffic during rush hour on Boston's major arteries, sending a clear message to Washington and the world that we will not allow business to proceed as usual while people are dying for our gasoline. And they plan to block the JFK Federal Building. And it's gathering at the um, SEIU Local 285, which is the seventh floor, 145 Tremont Street. Um, across from the common at 7 p.m. for those who are interested. At 7 p.m. at the JFK. That was tonight. Uh, oh, okay. The thing in the Sorry. morning is very early. Sorry about that. Somebody, 7 a.m. 7 a.m. tomorrow 7 morning. Okay. Tonight's meeting gathered at the JFK Federal Building at Government Center tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Okay. Sorry about that. Somebody gave me. Can, can I ask if anyone hasn't gotten me? Well, we're going to ask the Q&A. Okay, fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, while we're doing the Q&A, if you haven't gotten a schedule of the week's activities for the Peace Center and you want one, um, indicate it to me while we're doing the Q&A. Okay, and there's just one correction that needs to be made on that, and that's that the march for the day after the either the shooting or the bombing begins that's supposed to take place at Tufts does not begin at 1.45 p.m. as indicated on the sheet, but rather at 12.30 p.m. Okay, and now we can begin with question and answers. Um, would people like to raise, okay. Well, I think uh, a credible, sane position is the one that most of the world is taking. Namely, uh, rely on sanctions and uh, pursue the diplomatic track. I don't think that sanctions should involve things like food. I uh, definitely, uh, it's not a, there's nothing especially right. I'm in this position of the National Council of Churches, for example. You know, we're not out in left field. Uh, and it's the position of most of the world. Uh, the sanctions in this case will cut off uh, Iraqi oil exports, which is their total export trade. Uh, and sooner or later, they will, and probably sooner, it will have the effect of uh, opening up a diplomatic track. In fact, it may have had that effect last August. And we know what the contours of a diplomatic settlement are. Uh, 
I mentioned a couple of examples. They're perfectly reasonable. They've even been proposed by Iraq, according to U.S. officials. So there's a viable course. I don't understand what the big problem is. Now, viable course is to say, okay, let's consider the proposal of January 2nd, and let's see if it's going to work. That's a reasonable proposal. It's perfectly reasonable to have a, a diplomatic settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict. The United States has been blocking it for 20 years, and we should oppose that. We should have such a settlement. It's perfectly reasonable to have a diplomatic settlement of the very serious problem of uh, weapons of mass destruction in the region. Fine, let's stop opposing that. Apparently, if we stop opposing those two things, we can arrange for Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait. So I don't understand what the problem is. The problem, in fact, I do understand what the problem is. The problem is the United States won't accept those outcomes. But from our point of view, you know, having a credible answer, I don't think that's very hard. In fact, most of the world has that answer. Well, the facts are pretty clear. Um, Iraq released transcripts of meetings, and they were basically agreed to be authentic by the United States. Uh, these were meetings right on the eve of the uh, invasion between April Glaspie, who was the U.S. ambassador and is, in fact, one of the big State Department experts on Iraq. Uh, she was the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. With, she had meetings with Saddam Hussein, I think we forget, a day or two before the invasion. And there was also testimony from, in, from the State Department here, public testimony, all of which the, the basic tenor of it was that the United States recognized that Iraq had claims against Kuwait and it had no particular, no particular position on the border issues. Now, the, there's basically the two border issues that I mentioned. One has to do with access to the Gulf, uh, and that involves you know, these two islands uninhabited islands. The other has to do with this one contested oil field. And the U.S. position was we have no position on those things. Now, Saddam Hussein, we just, it's very hard to second, to figure out what's going on in Saddam Hussein's head, but a, f a fair speculation is he assumed that that was a green light. That's possible. Uh, uh, however, there's a further speculation here, which is not totally without credibility, I must say, but I don't believe it, and that is that the United States tried to draw him in. Uh, which does have some advantages for the U.S., there's no doubt about it. I mean, from, you know, from the point of view of this, this mad strategic logic that I was talking about, there's some point to having at least maybe a war, or at least the threat of war. It gives the U.S. bases in the region, you know, it uh, establishes the efficacy of force, gives a shot to the domestic Pentagon system, which was in some trouble, and so on. So, yeah. However, I just think it's extremely unlikely that the attempt was to draw him in. It's much too dangerous. I mean, unless people are really crazy, they wouldn't have done that. It's not saying it's impossible. And, you know, there's, it's not, the argument for it is not zero, but I don't believe it myself. I think what happened is Saddam Hussein probably interpreted it as authorization, as saying, well, the United States doesn't care, so I'll move in. And then when the U.S. perceived that this guy is not just a loyal puppet, but rather an independent nationalist, then all of a sudden he's got to go. Uh, notice that the invasion of Kuwait didn't really add very much to his crimes, didn't add a lot. 
and it didn't bring him up to the level of plenty of people we support, like General Suharto in Indonesia, for example. But it did show that he was an independent nationalist, and that's the ultimate crime. If you're an independent nationalist, you can be you know, a conservative parliamentary Democrat, you can be a right-wing military figure, you can be a left-wing organizer. Doesn't matter what you are, you gotta be knocked off because that's the one thing the U.S. will not tolerate. Hussein's like Noriega. Noriega we ostensibly removed because we were concerned about uh, his interaction or his involvement in international drugs. Then we proceeded to install bankers, money launderers for the drug cartel as the government of Panama, putting the lie to the motivation. The real motivation was, again, admittedly a thug, admittedly a, uh, uh, an authoritarian you know, person, but uh, a nationalist. But I want to relay, although I agree with, with Noam, I want to relay a conversation that I had in, in um, October. I had a conversation with a fellow named John Stockwell, who some of you may know who he is. He, he's a, yeah, he, he, he's an ex-CIA agent who is now uh, on our side and has done a great deal of work for peace and for justice. And I asked him what he thought about what was going on, and it was much before now. It was back in uh, early November. And he, he took me by surprise. Um, he said, in the absence of sufficient domestic dissent, there will be war. Um, and the reason there will be war, he said, I have to, to explain that to you, I have to tell you how we think about it in the CIA. Now, I don't think this is the best way to think about it, but he did tell me how they teach you to think about these things in the CIA. And they said, you can't really look at the immediate context for your full understanding, because it's too volatile and it's too fraught with possible confusion. You have to look at the history of the country and ask, does it periodically go to war or not? In this case, both sides, yes. If it does periodically go to war, what are the indices which tend to be exhibited in the country when it goes to war? And you look at those indices, he says, he told me. And he said, if you look at the indices for the United States, you find war. You find the economy decaying. You find the, the possibility, the, the, the allegiance of the public to the policies of the government being undermined, the peace dividend. And you find the possibility of uh, a large-scale war being a way to uh, alleviate that problem as well as to pursue the course of becoming the world's mercenary state. And he felt, and I relay it for what it's worth, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it, he felt, after all he was in there, that if we weren't in this position with Hussein right now, we would be in this position with Cuba. That literally Hussein was a gift. Uh, not a, an arrangement, not a, uh, not a trap, but a gift that Hussein's activities provided exactly what they wanted. Um, and it does sort of go a long ways to explain our absolute unwillingness to get out of this in anything short of what we're facing. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Okay. We'll just take a couple more questions and then we will have a question and answer that will take um, place at the Student Center where Noam and Michael uh, Albert have both promised to spend a few more minutes at this Peace Center answering questions. So, um, gentlemen over there. Well, you know, we have experience on that. Uh, back in the 60s, uh, yeah, plenty of experience. Uh, the, the, there, I mean, every time there has been dissent, there has been repression. 
uh, uh, some of it got exposed. Like, for example, during the 1960s, the, I don't know how many of you felt, know about the COINTEL Pro uh, program. That was a big FBI program, uh, which went through holes. Actually, it started in the 30s, but it really picked up under Kennedy. Uh, and it targeted first the Communist Party, then the Puerto Rican nat nationalist movement, then uh, the, uh, uh, the black uh, movements, all of them, the civil rights movement, all the peace movements, the entire new left, uh, the American Indian movement, everybody. And that reached to the level of uh, actual political assassination. You know, like the worst case was the Gestapo-style assassination of a Black Panther organizer, probably drugged in bed by the Chicago police uh, with an FBI uh, cover. Uh, it also, tar I mean, it also did things, that it, it, it instigated race riots and violence in the ghettos uh, and took credit for killings. I mean, a lot of this documentation came out on, you know, uh, court cases and things like that. Uh, it also did things that were like a joke, so like, at M I mean, I was one of the targets of it uh, at MIT. I mean, this is just a joke, but just to give you the kinds of things they do, to give you some insight into the FBI. Uh, they had to, they were forced under court order to release uh, to release uh, documents and here's what's going to go on at MIT they uh, 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 they were forced under court order to release documents for people who were targeted under COINTELPRO and two of the people who were targeted were uh, uh, teaching assistants in a course that Louis Kampf and I taught that Mike was in a couple of times and other people back in the 60s uh, these guys, the, the two people who were teaching assistants were guys in the draft resistance movement and other things. We sort of brought people in, you know, who could do good things and could use the job and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, the, uh, here, the se their sequence of FBI documents got released under court order. It starts like this first one from the Boston office to uh, J. Edgar Hoover says, we've discovered that these two guys are teaching assistants at MIT. That would be a good, we think that'd be a good, our source, it says, our source within MIT, and then something's blacked out, and we haven't been able to figure out who it was. Uh, our source within MIT tells us that these two guys are teaching assistants. This would be a good target for a disinformation operation. Uh, can we have authors to get them kicked out? Can we have authorization for it? Uh, and then a thing comes back from J. Edgar Hoover saying, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, go ahead. And then it goes up and back for a while. And finally, at the end, the last one from the Boston office says, uh, our source within MIT tells us that all this stuff has worked and these two guys are not going to be hired next year, so we've succeeded. The only problem with that story is it was a total fake. These two guys were going off to their next piece of work. They never had the slightest intention of coming back to spend another term at MIT. Uh, and the whole thing had been cooked up in an FBI office. Incidentally, that's one of the kinds of things that goes on in FBI offices. Uh, an, uh, an agent has a caseload, and it's a lot easier not to go after guys in the mafia, you know, because, like, they shoot back. But if you <laughs> fiddle around with people like us, we're not going to shoot back, you know, even if they did it. Uh, and uh, uh, that kind of stuff will go on. So everything from probably faked and invented harassment to really serious things like organizing political assassinations and uh, uh, ghetto riots. That's the kind of thing that will go on. Uh, that's been going on all through American history. We've got a very rough history of repression of uh, dissidents. And it already is going on if you read the papers. The FBI is going around to Arab Americans in systematic ways and telling them, among other things, if you receive any threats, come to us for protection. And if you read the front page of the New York Times, there have been a number of articles 
You know, repression is, is certainly a real phenomenon, but it, it's, not, um, it's not as effective as it's often led on to be unless we let it be. Uh, there's two things that I'd like to suggest that are critical to having the kind of activities that they engage in be infinitely less effective than they otherwise might be. The first is you have to have support. If you have substantial support, really massive support, it's very hard to repress. An instance of that here at MIT was MIT thought it was very clever. They got an injunction in which they listed about 10 of us to, uh, that we weren't allowed on the campus and we, we were to be arrested on site on the day of a demonstration. So the 10 of us and many thousands of other people came to MIT and we stood on the, on the steps and ripped it up. And with many thousands of people there and with many more thousands who would have supported us, it was very difficult to do anything about it. That's one answer to repression. The second side of repression is infiltration and the kind of thing that was done to the Panthers and to many other groups. And while that activity is effective and that activity is deadly and it's impossible to stop it entirely, it is possible to do better than we did then. What we did then often was to construct a movement in which a policeman was at home, in which a policeman was not immediately obvious. If you have a movement which is really humane and which is really democratic and in which macho behavior stands out like a sore thrum, police agents have a very hard time infiltrating. We have never found one, we have never encountered one who can operate in that kind of context in an effective fashion. And that's not a small thing. That can save lives in addition to building a movement that it's worth being a part of. Oh, oh wait a minute. This, yeah. Oh, there's logic behind it. Uh, you could argue about whether, uh, just for, put purely cynical, you know, forgetting anything about morality. Uh, we even know some of the background for it. Uh, in 1948, oh, the question was, what's the logic behind U.S support of Israel, and notice it's pretty strong support. We're supporting them to the extent of rejecting a political settlement, blocking a political settlement, using it as a base to go to war, and so on. Uh, refusing to ar arrange for a reduction of, you know, we claim to be concerned about Iraqi uh, weapons of mass destruction, but not at the cost of getting Israel to eliminate its nuclear weapons, you know, not that cost. So the, and the support is, official support is around three billion a year, actually, it comes to more than that. Uh, all of that is, uh, expensive, and then there's all these Arab countries around with the oil, like the Gulf Oil Principality, so what's the logic? Well, uh, the lo there's a real logic, and let me just run through it quick quickly. For, uh, starting in 1948, when Israel was founded, right after Israel began, be they, at that point, they weren't clear what to do, but Israel won some pretty big military victories very fast. In fact, even before the state was established, it already expanded quite considerably in the Civil War. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff concluded right then uh, that uh, Israeli power would be a good base for the United States in the region. They said after Turkey, Israel is the major military power in the region, 
and it can, uh, it can be a, a, an outpost of U.S. strength, especially with Britain in trouble. Our lieutenant was in trouble in the region, uh, and this would be a base for using force. Ultimately, you have to use force to control people. Uh, that continued. So in 1958, the National Security Council had a memorandum in which they, recommend, they concluded that opposition, they said a logical corollary to our opposition to radical Arab nationalism, that means independence, a logical corollary to our opposition to independent nationalism would be support for Israel as the one reliable pro-Western pro state in the region. And it goes on like that. In the 1960s, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, we know, in fact, the whole intelligence system, regarded Israel as a barrier uh, against Nasser's pressure on the Gulf oil producers. And in fact, by that time, an alliance was being set up, which was kind of formalized under the Nixon Doctrine around 1970, uh, an alliance between Israel, Iran under the Shah, and Saudi Arabia, you know, in which Iran and Israel were the tough guys who kept anybody under control uh, and made sure that the uh, ruling family of Saudi Arabia would stay rich and powerful and not be threatened and work for us. Uh, now, uh, uh, the smart guys and people, the more intelligent analysts in the United States were entirely aware of this. So for example, Senator Henry Jackson, who at that time was the Senate's leading specialist in energy in the Middle East and so on, and I was a big hawk and very pro-Israel. Uh, he uh, spilled the whole story publicly and correctly. He said that, he said just what I said, more or less, I mean, he put it a little different words, but basically he said that Israel and Iran under the Shah are reliable, powerful states which can protect the Gulf oil producers from disruption by radical elements. Now, uh, Saudi Arabia is not a country that has documents that you can find, you know, so we'll never have a documentary record from Saudi Arabia. But when the U.S. records come out for that period, and unless they're destroyed or censored, I, I predict what we're going to find. What we're going to find is an actual alliance between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and, and the Shah. From the Saudi Arabian elite point of view, Israel's fine. Now, they may yell about it and this and that, but they're happy. They want to have a, 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 what's called a cop, but you have to be pretty cynical about the police to use this phrase, rent a cop. They want a thug around, you know, a rent a thug around, who's going to uh, uh, suppress radical tendencies, who will be a base for power. And that goes right on to the present. Meanwhile, by the 1970s, Israel had begun to take on other roles. It was becoming a mercenary state. It was used by the U.S. in the 60s under a big CIA subsidy to penetrate black Africa. It was used in Asia. It was used in Latin America. Uh, it's, and it's useful for a big terrorist country like the United States. It's useful to have a mercenary state around. The other countries hire individual terrorists, but we don't. We use mercenary states, terrorist states. We're big shots, you know. And uh, a little bit of this came out in the Iran-Contra hearings. And if you'll notice, there was an alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, what actually happened, this is part of the story suppressed in the Iran-Contra hearings, but it's all in the public record. I, I was writing about it in the early 80s. Immediately after the fall of the Shah, immediately, no hostages, nothing about hostages, years before there were hostages, immediately after the fall of the Shah, the United States started sending arms to Iran via Israel, paid for by Saudi Arabia. And the Israeli, high Israeli officials who were involved in it were completely open and public. Same guys who showed up later in the Iran-Contra hearings. They told, said exactly what was going on. What was going on was 
uh, the United States was doing the standard thing that you do when you're trying to overthrow a government, support its military. You want to overthrow a government, you support it, send arms to its military. That's the way you, get, you make contacts with elements in the military who will overthrow the government for you. That's the way we overthrew the government of Indonesia, of Chile, um, case after case, and they were just running the same game. And even in, in the highly suppressed story of the damage control operation that was called the Iran-Contra hearings, you look, you can still see it. There was an Iran-Israel-Saudi Arabia connection, and that's that old connection. Now, you know, those are reasons. Uh, there's also intelligence interactions. Israel uh, can do things for the United States. Israel tests advanced weapons in live battlefield conditions against defenseless targets. That's useful. Uh, it's part of what went on in things like the Lebanon War. Uh, there's weapon, common weapons development. You know, there's all kinds of things. So from some points of view, you know, the Israeli lobby, the Jewish lobby, these, you know, the pro-Israeli lobby here, they claim that Israel's really a bargain. Uh, and they've got an argument. You know, if these are the things you want done in the world, yeah, that's an argument. Uh, in fact, I'll just finally conclude, at the same time, 1948, when the Joint Chiefs were noticing that Israel's the dominant military, one of the dominant military forces in the region, uh, the Israeli State Archives, which have since been public, partially released, they also commented on what was going on, and they described the Palestinians as what they said, human dust and human waste, who will just become part of the debris of the Arab world as they scatter. And that was the position of the U.S. too. Now, if you've got a choice between two groups, one of them a tough, militarized, advanced Western state, and the other people who can just become more of the human dust that floats around the world, you know which one people in power are going to support. And that's still their view. That's been their view from 1948 to today, and that explains why they're doing what they do. I know there are a lot of questions, and what we've promised to do is have an extended um, question and answer session that will now take place in the Student Center, and we also invite everyone else to participate in other activities that will be going on there. Um,